Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're going to do the Arthashastra. Now, the Arthashastra is a work. It's not a person. The Arthashastra was written and revised over many centuries. It's a piece of Indian political thought, mainly ancient. Uh, It's not totally clear when it was written or who contributed to it. The author refers to himself in the third person as Cotillia. Traditionally, Kautilya is said to be Chanakya, advisor to the Emperor Chandragupta, the founder of the Mauryan dynasty. Now, if that were the case, that would put the Arthashastra in the 4th century BC. But historians argue that the text has too many stylistic inconsistencies and historical inconsistencies to come from one author or one period. Some argue that Chanakya was the first author and that the text was subsequently revised. Others argue that the text originates in the 2nd century BC, so 200 years later, with further revisions occurring over the next 400 years or so. It's been suggested that Chanakya became associated with the text to lend it authority, to suggest that the rulers who were following the precepts of this text were acting in accordance with Mauryan political thought, to kind of steal valor from the Mauryan dynasty. The Guptas in particular are uh, suggested as having done this. They don't come to power until the 4th century AD. So that would be 400 years, 500 years after the 2nd century BC. And you know we're talking six, 700 years after the 4th century BC. So this is a huge range in antiquity when people are positioning this text or parts of this text. So we're really not going to be able to to put a specific context on it. And in some ways that has worked to this text's favor because this text kind of positions itself as if it were a universal manual that anybody at any point in ancient Indian history could pick up and use. It was lost during the Middle Ages. It just kind of disappears but it resurfaced in the early 20th century when it was found by a librarian at the Mysore Oriental Library. That, that was what it was called. This librarian, Rudra Patna Shamasatri, so, again, I'm going to butcher some of these names, translated it into English in 1915. We're working off a fresher translation published by Penguin in 1992. All right. Now, this, this thing has developed a level of popularity. Henry Kissinger is a big fan of it. In 2014, he praised it as a guide to conquest. That's former Secretary of State under Richard Nixon bombed Cambodia, Henry Kissinger. So, this is a a bit of an interesting one, guys. So, let's start with, with the core philosophy of it, because this book has a spiritual basis. It's not just a set of specific recommendations about how to fight wars, although we'll get to some of that. So, The Arthashastra says that there are four branches of knowledge. Philosophy, which enables us to distinguish between good and bad use of force. The Vedas, which establish the duties of the four varnas or castes, as well as the four stages of life. Economics, which is concerned with agriculture, cattle rearing, and trade. 
and government, which is concerned with the maintenance of law and order. Now, per the Arthashastra, government is necessary to get the other branches of knowledge. You have to have law and order for it to be possible to access economic knowledge, the Vedas, and philosophy. So all of the rest of this depends on government. But importantly, government delivers these things. So part of what makes the system of law and order legitimate is that it delivers on the other branches of knowledge. And at the same time, all those branches of knowledge need government. So they must ultimately be checked by the fact that government has to, stable government has to exist. So this is important because, of course, the focus on the Vedas means that government is legitimate in part because it delivers on a spiritual journey, which means it creates space for some people to become ascetics. At the same time, the ascetics have to fit into a political order. So there's a mutual interdependence here between the spiritual path and politics expressly laid out right at the start of, of this conceptually. Right? Now, another interesting thing that's said here, this is not just about the, the strong conquering the weak. It says, unprotected, the small fish will be swallowed up by the big fish. In the presence of a king maintaining just law, the weak can resist the powerful. Now, who are the weak? Well, the text says that women and children are the weak. Uh, but it also means that castes that are weaker will be protected from castes that are stronger up until the point at which that would entail having people cross caste or, or do things that aren't appropriate to their caste. So this means that there is a level of protection that's afforded to the lower castes here from abuse. But this doesn't extend to the point of changing the caste system or abolishing the caste system because the caste system is in the Vedas. And part of the function of the state is to allow people to pursue the way of life laid out in the Vedas, right? So that means the Varnas, the castes, are going to be protected from each other, but they are going to be mandated. If you're born into one of these castes, you have to stay in that caste. You don't get an option to cross caste, right? What are the four Varnas? If you don't know them, we have the Brahman who study, teach, perform rituals, and officiate the rituals of others. We have the Kshatriya, who live by the profession of arms and protect all life. The Vaishya, who conduct economic activities like agriculture, cattle rearing, and trade. And the Sudra, who serve the three higher Varnas and do some of the, some of the craft work that is considered inappropriate to the Vaishya, right? So if you're born into one of those castes, you don't get to cross caste, you don't get to move Varna, but your role will be protected by the king's law. The king's law will ensure that you are not pushed into doing something that doesn't fit the specific Varna that you're born into. Right? Now, maybe you're really, really unhappy with your Varna. Some people really don't like the, the role that the caste system assigns to them. They can't hack it. It just doesn't fit with who they are or how they want to live. They feel deeply unsatisfied by it. Now, the Varnas go hand in hand with the four stages of life, and the four stages of life allow a householder to abandon ordinary life and to take up a form of ascetic life. What are the four stages? So you start with the householder. The householder is someone who pursues a profession, marries someone of the same Varna, has children, worships the gods, and sacrifices their own pleasures in the service of their dependents, right? That's the ordinary life which a person in any of the four varnas might live. The brahmachari, the next level up, 
They're people who study the scriptures, follow the rituals, forsake property, and devote themselves to a teacher. So they're not themselves teachers, but they devote themselves to a teacher. Then you have the Vanaspratha, Vanapratha, Vanaprastha, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to struggle through it, who are forest recluses. They're celibate, they sleep on the ground, they avoid luxury, and they live on things gathered from the forests. And then at the top level, you have the one that's the hardest to pronounce, the Parivrajaka, who are wandering ascetics. They renounce all sensory temptation, refrain from active life, renounce all possessions, give up all worldly ties, live on charity, and migrate from place to place. So note here, living on charity is further up than living on things gathered from the forests. These people have such a spiritual energy that people will give them stuff. Now, they can't just stay in one place and continue to live off of charity in one place. They move from place to place. But if you happen to encounter someone who is at this stage of life, it's such a special experience, you give them stuff so that they can sustain it, right? Now, if you notice, if you're on these higher spiritual paths, you're not contributing economically to the society. And there's a lot of emphasis on the importance of economics in this work. And yet, a person who is a householder can abandon being a householder and go down one of these paths. But only under certain circumstances. You can only abandon being a householder if you have no dependents or if your dependents are provided for by some store of wealth that you can prove is sufficient to provide for them. So if you have a wife and you have children and you try to take up an aesthetic life when they're not in position to be sustained or taken care of, the law prohibits that outright. You can only take up an ascetic path either before you have a wife and children or after your wife and children can provide for themselves or are provided for. So either in retirement, if you last that long, or before you would take a wife and have children at the very early stage of life, right? So what it does is it allows someone who can't really take up the profession associated with their varna, can't find themselves doing that. It allows that person to exit the social system, exit the householder system, and still have a way of living that suits them. So it's a way of upholding the Varnas by allowing a kind of, of uh, letting off of steam. The people who don't fit the caste system can be let out into this system of, of spirituality. So the system of spirituality has a political function. It sustains the Varna system by allowing those who don't fit into the Varna system to just exit to the margins and adopt this spiritual life. So it has an economic function in that it's necessary to keep the Varna system going. And the Varna system is what produces the wealth and what produces the power of the king. But at the same time, the, the state is positioned as legitimate in part because it creates opportunities for people to take the spiritual path, right? So the Varna system creates wealth and that creates the state and the state creates order. And in that order, those who are further along in the stages of life spiritually can take up these spiritual paths. But if you notice, this is a political text. There's a lot of emphasis on, on the householder sacrifices their own pleasures in the service of their dependents. When the other, when the ascetics are described in this text, it, it's not very nice. The ascetics are described as, as angry people, grumpy people, people that it's dangerous to meet alone because they, they might hurt you. Spies often take on the guise of ascetics. So the text is not just praising ascetics as these wonderful spiritual people. They are you know, people who couldn't fit into the householder system, wouldn't do it, 
in part because they're a little bit self-centered and therefore aren't necessarily to be trusted. Uh, and you kind of, you know, if you want to keep them happy, you have to suck up to them a little bit because if you treat them like they're spiritually special, then they'll be very nice. They'll be very nice to you, but only if you kind of treat them like they're special, right? So you see how the spiritual system fits into the politics and the politics is also justified in terms of servicing the spiritual system. So it goes in a nice little loop here. And this is, I think, the really distinctive thing about Indian political thought. This very distinctive loop that is drawn between the stages of life and the Varnas and the role of the state in keeping both of those things going at the same time and allowing each to benefit from the existence of the other. The householders make it possible for the ascetics to take charity. Right? It's the householders who are providing that charity. You need householders. The system is predicated on many people continuing to be householders and some people becoming ascetics. And it's suggested that, well, you know, if you don't become an ascetic in this life, there's reincarnation. There's always the next go. There's always the next trip. So even if it doesn't happen in this life that you become an ascetic, maybe next time. Maybe next time, right? Now, at all four stages of life, you're still expected to practice ahim uh, ahimsa. That prohibits injuring living things, right? All, everybody at every stage of life is expected to be truthful, to be clean, to be free from malice, to be compassionate and tolerant. That applies to everybody. So there's a set of laws that apply to everybody. But then there are also a lot of laws which will focus on specific varna or specific stages of life. So for instance, once you take on the ascetic life, if you then have sex with somebody, you break the law. Anybody, right? Because that's part of the duty. Being celibate is part of the duty of those ascetics. But that law, of course, would not apply to the householder. So the laws are specifically targeted at specific varna and at specific stages of life. And at many points, the text will specifically talk about people from this varna or people from this stage of life and uh, whether you can trust them and what roles you ought to give them, and how you ought to treat them when you meet with them. And it's different and highly specific rules for each of the different groups. Right? The king prevents anyone from swerving from the duties appropriate to their varna and their stage of life. Uh, and, and very often the king should have the spies pretend to be ascetics, right? Because it's so easy to pretend to be an ascetic. It's not like what the ascetics are doing is necessarily that special from the point of view of this text. It's easy to fake it. Easy. So easy that if you want to murder somebody else's king, some other king, you are highly advised to use fake ascetics to do this. At many, many points, too many for me to count, you are told, hire ascetics as spies. Use them to murder your enemies. Many, many times, right? Now, there's also a discussion of vice here. Vice is caused by ignorance, anger, and desire, right? So the fundamental cause is ignorance. If you have vice, it's because you are ignorant of how you really ought to behave. You don't really understand what it would be good for you to be doing. But linked to this are anger and desire. Anger is worse than desire, according to this text, because anger knows no bounds. It results in inflicting verbal injury, causing injury to another's property, and inflicting physical injury. According to the Arthashastra, physical injury is worst, followed by injuring property, followed by verbal injury. And there are discussions of other texts, other thinkers who put these things in different orders. And Cotillia will, will say Cotillia disagrees, uh, 
and then give Quatilia's view, but we'll often give other views that other people apparently had. We, I have to say apparently because we don't have the work. We don't have a lot of the things that, that the Arthashastra references. And to a large degree, we only know about some of these views because they're in the Arthashastra. So we kind of have to take the Arthashastra's word for it that there were these other views and other people who said these other things. Right. So, for instance, a view is discussed which frames verbal injury as worse than any other kind of injury. And, of course, you'll hear Cotillia disagrees because you can make somebody who's suffered a verbal injury feel better by giving them money or giving them a gift. But if you cause injury to another's property, a gift may not be sufficient or physical injury. A gift may not be sufficient to get that person to forgive you. Right. Now, desire. Anger is worse than desire, but desire also causes a number of vices. Results in four addictions. This text loves numbered lists and loves to rank order the things in the lists. So you have four addictions, hunting, gambling, women, and drink. Hunting is the least bad because you learn things about animals and you get exercise, right? Yes, if you're on a hunt, you can get hurt. You can get lost in the woods. Somebody who's in your hunting party can use it as an opportunity to murder you. There are issues with hunting. But... You will learn things about animals and get exercise. Gamblers can be reformed, while men who are addicted to women cannot. So in that respect, being addicted to women is worse than gambling because gamblers are more likely to be reformed. However, an addiction to women can produce a vast household, and a vast household can aid you in personal defense. Having lots and lots of people in your household can help you. Right? Uh, drink is worse than addiction to women in this respect, because it leads to association with harmful people, excessive indulgence in music and singing. That's what the text says. And loss of learning, intellect, strength, and good friends. But then the text says, even so, gambling is, worse of, is the worst of all because gambling creates fresh enemies. So if you're playing some kind of, of game of cards with somebody, if you lose, you lose wealth. But if you win, the person you beat becomes your enemy. So it's a lose-lose situation in gambling. When you win, the person that you beat, the person you take money from, develops a grudge. And when you lose, you lose wealth that you could otherwise have, have used in a more useful way. And the text says that divisions created by gambling can destroy the ruling class, that the ruling class can be uh, so torn apart by gambling animosities that it becomes totally dysfunctional and the state collapses, Right. So, how do you avoid these vices? Well, if the prince has a natural potential for self-rule, the prince can be taught to resist vice. So, what's the education for the prince? Well, we get a very specific education here. Uh, much more specific than you get in, say, Nizam al-Malk, who's a little bit uh, flippant about the education of princes. And I would say even more specific and detailed than you get from Michael Sellos. The thing about Michael Sellos is he's going to give you a very specific, you know, rank ordering of virtues. And in Platonic theory, you get these rank orderings of virtues and a progression from one set of virtues to another in a kind of virtue ladder, or you get kind of a relation to habits in Aristotelian work. You know, you learn the habits, then you question the habits, uh, then you understand why you were taught the habits, and then you're in position to improve the habits. Instead of thinking about it in terms of an intellectual development, here you get a very specific, you know, what you should be sent to do, how you should spend time. So it's less about a virtue ladder than it is about specifically what should you be doing with your time, you know, with a remarkable level of detail. So the prince should be sent to an ashram 
to live as a brahmachari, a celibate student, until the age of 16. So the prince should spend a certain amount of time uh, training as if they're not going to be a householder, as if they're going to be an ascetic, right? As a celibate student, the prince should learn the four branches of knowledge. And of course, celibate student until the age of 16. So no sex for the prince until the age of 16. None, right? The four branches of knowledge enable the prince to gain self-control. The prince gives up vice and avoids overindulging in physical pleasure. There are six key enemies mentioned that the prince must defeat. Lust, anger, greed, conceit, arrogance, and foolhardiness. But there is a tendency in this text for these, these concepts to just be given with no real discussion of what they mean. So in, say, Aristotle... Uh, or in uh, a lot of Platonic theory, you'll get a, a detailed discussion of you know, what precisely is courage or what is uh, greed or what is conceit. Here, they will just kind of be given in a list. And of course, the prince, when they're with their teacher, will discuss exactly what those concepts mean and will explore them. But that's not going to be given here in, in this book. This book is telling you broadly, how do you educate someone? But it's not giving the education. That depends on the specific relationship between the specific prince and the specific teacher and can't be given ex ante from the point of view of this book, right? Uh, at the end of all of this, the prince can become a wise king, and a wise king is like a sage, but the king does not need to deprive himself of all pleasures, only those that are harmful to well-being. So after acquiring this learning, the king will then, of course, be able to have a wife and have children, which is necessary to have an heir, and will be able to indulge in some pleasures, but they will have enough knowledge to know the difference between those that can be indulged in and those that can't. And I see a certain similarity here to say what, uh, what Plato says about necessary and unnecessary desires, that there are certain desires that cannot be gotten rid of, that you have to accommodate, and others that you, you really shouldn't accommodate. So the, the king is not exhorted to become an ascetic or to aspire to the life of the ascetic. The king spends a little time around the ascetics, learns what you can learn from that, and then adopts a balanced life between the material and the spiritual. Now, there's even a detailed schedule given for a king with specific amounts of hours spent doing activities. And I'll read you the schedule real quick just to give you the flavor. Right? The first one and a half hours of the day at dawn, the king receives basic reports on defense, revenue, expenditure, the core reports on what's going on. Then for one and a half hours, the king hears petitions. After that, the king takes one and a half hours of personal time, baths, meals, study. It would seem that during that one and a half hours, they might think about the reports and the petitions that they heard earlier in the day. Then after that, for one and a half hours, they task high officials, give high officials things to do, perhaps in response to some of the things that they heard. Then for one and a half hours, they write letters, and then they start hearing the secret information from the spies. Next one and a half hours, you inspect and review the armed forces. Then for one and a half hours, you consult with the chief military advisor on the basis of that inspection and review that you just did. Then for one and a half hours, you interview secret agents. So this is, you know, detailed, detailed engagement with the spies. Now, after all that heavy work, you get one and a half hours of personal time again, four and a half hours of sleep. Then you wake up, you have one and a half hours of meditation, one and a half hours of household and personal duties, meeting with spiritual teachers, physicians, and so on. 
Now, kings are allowed to alter this schedule. If it doesn't work for you, you can probably have more than four and a half hours of sleep, for instance. Right? But one of the qualities of a good king is energy. So if you can sleep this little and you've got enough energy to do that, it doesn't adversely affect your health. Great. But of course, most of us are not the kind of people who can get by on four and a half hours of sleep. But you know, in the schedule, before the four and a half hours of sleep, there's one and a half hours of personal time. And after there's one and a half hours of meditation. And if you rolled those three hours into the four and a half, you'd get to seven and a half, which wouldn't be too far off the mark. Right. So that's the kind of basic spiritual backdrop to this. Now, we're going to then get into some of the specific things. But before I do that, because there's quite a bit going on in this text, I want to give Alex an opportunity to express any thoughts he may have had about the more spiritual elements of the text. Um, I guess you can't lose sight of the property aspect. Mm. So your, your cast is there to kind of tie you to a certain station. And it's, it's quite lucky, to be honest, to have the chance to be able to leave it. But a bit like with a lot of the punishments, you know, mutilations, ridiculous fines, like you're kind of expected to stay work to pay them off. And similarly with becoming an ascetic, you have to work to pay that to achieve that. It's like a retirement benefit if you make it. Yeah, the punishments that are given are very specific. I haven't really done a lot of the punishments, but a lot of them are very specific. There are a lot of crimes given. It's almost as if it contains a whole legal code. You've got to imagine that this is something that could be passed on through oral tradition. This contains sutras that someone might be expected to memorize and to be able to recite. So a lot of this is, well, according to the Arthashastra, this is the crime and this is the punishment. And you might be expected to know all of these things by heart if you were an aspiring prince. Do you think that, say, panas is the currency, say it's X amount of panas to, to steal a crop, will it stay the same for a long period of time? And is that because the economy doesn't really, or prices don't change much because the king is supposed to control prices? Yeah, there's not a whole lot of economic growth. The fundamental way in which the society is organized is kind of taken as a given here. So you don't get a lot of discussion of, you know, could you reform the caste system or change it? Because it has, it, the, the Vedas are so old and they're just kind of taken to be the thing which is the organizing principle. So that's spiritually agreed upon here. And so there isn't really any other point of view from which you might otherwise design the society. Now, of course, as time goes on, things do change. It's not as if everything is consistently the same throughout the entire period in which people uh, think this book may have been written. It's in part because things change that it seems clear to people that it was written at different points or adjusted at different points. There are some changes to Indian society. You know, for one, you have some periods, say the Mauryan and the Gupta, where you have one big state and other periods where you have much uh, larger numbers of much smaller states. And a lot of the advice that's given here operates from the premise that you may not be the biggest state. You may be a conqueror, but you may have a relatively small state, as we'll get into as we talk about the foreign policy and some of the stuff about middle kings and neutral kings. Um, but yeah, th there's a huge, huge period that this is potentially covering. So there's going to be some discrepancies there. It's just respect for that tradition out of kind of mystical ideas versus ideas of technicality and competence. There's maybe a tension. Well, I think there isn't really any basis for imagining that there is some other fundamental way of doing this. Because you'll be conquered by other slave-owning peoples or? 
Well, the 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 spiritual practice here is is thought to be very ancient. Of course, there was a time before the Vedas, but that time is is remote enough that there isn't a whole lot of of you know what else could you do. Of course, other there there is contact with other peoples, other ways of life, and there there is contact certainly with the Greek kings uh, that come in and invade with Alexander. And part of the reason the Mauryan Empire is formed is to deal with these expansionist Greek kings who cross into the Indus River Valley. So there's some contact. Uh, but for the most part, you are dealing with societies that have seemingly always worked this way. And, and the text just kind of takes it for granted that this is how it works. There isn't a discussion of, oh, you could have a kingdom or you could have a different kind of state. Uh, it It's just kind of taken for given that Kingdoms are the way things are. There's always a king. Uh, there's always one. Some kings are better than others, but there's always a king. You don't really get a discussion of types of regimes or of other possible ways of organizing the economy or the politics. You're given a lot of specific advice about how to do the king thing, but it only really works within that frame. Maybe I overemphasize the cost bit because when you were talking about that, I thought about how say, the administrative units. They start at maybe 10 to 12 villages and go up to 800. And just thinking about- Yeah, this thing scales. So the, the thought here is the conqueror can just add more land and scale this, right? This can be made big. But a, a big Indian state and a small Indian state have the same basic form of government. It's just scaled differently. That's how this text thinks about it. So therefore, if you want more wealth, get more arable land, get more farmland. The more farmland you have, the more wealth you have, so the more powerful state you have, which lets you acquire more land, which lets you acquire more wealth, which gives you a more powerful state. And this is, it's just kind of treated as a linear thing. It's Problems of scale are not really discussed very much. It's just kind of taken for granted that this is how kingdoms work. And some are bigger and some are smaller, but they're all basically the same thing. Is it almost like a feudal medieval, except it doesn't have people tied to a lord? It's all centralized, so no matter there how is far some, you are. There is some vassalization discussion, but that's mainly kings vassalized to other kings. Um, Not a manorial system, which is a bit different, maybe. It's yeah. more like your... Yeah. Well, so one of the points that's made about land is arable land. Arable land returns to the king when the landholder dies. But land that someone goes out of their way to cultivate, if they've made that land, farmland, by their own effort, then they can pass it on. So it's interesting. A lot of people think that, well, either you would have a system where the state owns everything or you would have a system where private, you know, everything is in private hands. Here, the land that's really easy to farm reverts to the states so that it can be given out again to further the, the loyalty of people living in the state to the king and to keep the king powerful. But the land that is difficult to, to, keep, uh, to keep in good condition, you want skilled farmers doing that, people who have grown up with that land who know it well. So the text makes space for the private skilled landholder in the, on the types of land where there has real, there's real value to that. But for people who are along a river that just floods regularly and you can farm it in a very straightforward way, that land reverts to the states so that the state can continue to give it out. There's a balance struck there between the state's ownership of land 
and private landholding, which emphasizes the benefits of private landholding, but only on the terrain that where it actually takes real skill to farm it. And when the state wants to get more land, they'll give concessions, grants, lower debts, grain tools, all that stuff. And it's said that they will pay them beforehand, or, or they will agree on a payment as opposed to the person who developed the land giving them a share of the harvest. But then it says the state can choose not to pay them if the person developing it fails and it's a time of distress or something like that. So yeah, then, so if yeah. you have a farmer who's incompetent, who's not farming the land well, at that point, the land can just be taken by the state because you can't have food shortages. And it, you're advised in this text to ensure that you have not just enough food for everyone who lives on the land, but enough food where if you were invaded by another state, you could still sustain both your population and the invading army. So the invading army won't cause a general shortage. Same thing with, with water. There's a focus on, on having not just enough water uh, to get by, but to not being dependent on the rain, to having enough water where even if there's a drought, there will be plenty of water. So there's a focus on not just having enough, but having a little bit of an abundance and excess so that you can deal with crisis situations. The amount of supervision needed to doomsday prep for that and keep updating the stocks. It's amazing. Uh, and this is why there are so many different officials that are put in charge of managing because a large amount of this is, is a bit of a planned economy. One of the reasons for this is that there are a lot of kinds of things that only the state can build, that nobody else is really going to be in position to build, things like reservoirs. Uh, only the state is really going to have the resources to make the, sure these things get constructed. And so there's a heavy emphasis on the state funding infrastructure projects. Heavy, heavy emphasis. And letting people work for them when there's... Oh, I think Keynes was talking about this. We didn't talk about it, but just basically fund huge public infrastructure. Not infrastructure, just pyramids. Yeah, basically. this is part of why I think it's kind of fun to do this immediately after Keynes. There's a lot of, of, of fund public works mm. in this. Now, it's not framed in terms of boosting aggregate demand, but it is framed in terms of, of to maximize the performance of the economy so that the state can be powerful. The state will need to make investments in developing the land because there will be a lot of stuff that will otherwise just never get built. That only the state can build. But they don't have to build things like, well, the alcohol industry, the salt industry, the metal, the coins. But it's said that the state controls those, maybe because of the immorality, the corruption that happens when it goes private. Yeah. Certain industries, the state needs to keep a close eye on because they could be the basis for establishing power bases right? that contradict the state. So there's a private sector, but the private sector has to be managed. It has to be kept in a kind of uh, limited role. And part of how this is done is by having all that land that's arable returned to the state so that the state is not having the amount of land that it owns diminished over time. Yeah, no one. Yeah. Because the power base ultimately is the farmland on, in, in antiquity. So if you are having your farmland diminished over time, that becomes a huge political problem. For instance, in, in China, uh, one of the major issues that you sometimes would have in, say, uh, you know, the later periods of, of some of the Chinese dynasties is if you made a land, state land, attached to a particular office in, a, in an inheritable way, then gradually over time, the land would come into the hands of people who are not state officials, because not every child of the 
uh, person who was the official would also end up in the same office. And so gradually the offices would lose their link to the land that they're tied to. And so when you'd replace the office holder, you wouldn't be replacing someone who owns all of the land, but a smaller and smaller partial par- parcel of the land. More and more of the land would come into private hands, and gradually that would weaken the central authority over time. This is prevented in this text by having so much of the land revert to the king. But not the land that people have independently cultivated by their own effort, which would otherwise lie fallow. They can keep that because Mm -hmm. the king can't be sure that the king will be able to conveniently find someone who understands how to make that land work. (laughs) The people who grew up on that land are most likely to understand it. Even if they can't, though, they're, they're supposed to carry out a census constantly. Would you agree? Because they're not supposed to know just about, say, a shortage in income, or f- they're supposed to know the causes of it, the whole supply chain. Yeah, they so- have to, they're constantly trying to gather data and gather information. Now, of course, in our contemporary society, we constantly gather data and information. You can have a huge pile of spies in antiquity, and you still won't know as much as we know today about what's going on, <laughs> especially mm-hmm. because a lot of people will give you bad information. But this is why you, there's so many spies. Both in this text and in Nizam al-Malk's text, huge piles of spies, so much discussion of spies, because you want to you wanna try to get the real information so that you can make sense of these problems. Otherwise, they take you by surprise, and by the time you're in position to do anything, it's too late. Is it a big enough employment opportunity to take a lot, or protect a lot of the vulnerable people from otherwise child labor, uh, child slavery even, mm-hmm. sexual slavery? those kinds of things, which come up a lot. Yeah, these are things that uh, the state is supposed to protect people from. These are not things that suit necessarily. They uh, you know, do not suit the system, aren't part of the system, and the king is expected to prevent these things from happening. Now, I do want to talk a little bit, because we've been talking about wealth. I want to talk about the treason section a little. So, rebellion is caused by discontent and the king finds out about discontent by employing spies often in the guise of of ascetics right so these spies go around and they find out who's content and who's not the content people should be appreciated and you give them more stuff to appreciate them from time to time if you have discontented people you start with conciliation you start with talking to them and trying to sort out what it is and try to talk them into being more content Uh, If you can't find a way to meet their demands and make them content, uh, then you make them tax collectors. If you make discontented people tax collectors, everyone will hate them. And they won't have any power base because they will be hated. And if you really make them hated, you can even get the people to, to eliminate them. You can make them so hated for collecting tax, you can blame them for collecting too much tax. You could say, oh, this tax collector is a terrible overtaxer, and you can invite the people to kill tax collectors that you don't like. So making someone a tax collector is a good way to put them in harm's way if they're causing you trouble. Now, poverty causes greed on this account, and greed leads to discontent. Because if you have poverty, then you're too focused on trying to get stuff. So you become greedy by necessity. That then makes you discontented. And discontented people will go over to the enemy or kill the ruler themselves. Right? So if you have a war, discontented people will defect. Uh, and of course, they may, they may try to kill you of their own accord, even in peacetime. So poverty is 
the ultimate enemy because poverty is a huge driver of discontent. If you manage the economy well, you prevent poverty, and that reduces greed, and that reduces discontent, right? So a lot of the power of, that the king has is being used to fight poverty as a means of fighting greed and fighting discontent. And on this text, power gets linked very heavily with happiness. What you are using power to do is to get rid of discontent, right? So what you're using power to do is to make people happy. So the king with the most power will also have the happiest people, right? And the kings who don't have happy people, when a war comes, they'll be betrayed. <laughs> ah, so there is a big connection between happiness, managing the economy, and power. These things are all tightly connected to one another. Power allows you to manage the economy to make people happy. Happy people do what, they're, what you need them to do, generating economic output and making you more powerful. Goes in a nice little loop here. Right? Now, if a revolt does happen, a revolt in the interior of the kingdom, say in the capital with your inner circle, with your advisors potentially betraying you, is more dangerous than a revolt in the exterior where uh, some jungle, jungle faction, jungle is often the word that is used in the translation that we've got, some jungle army, a jungle warlord might uh, rebel against you. Uh, you, know, you may not like that term, but that is the term that is repeatedly used in the translation that we've got. Why is it offensive, jungle tribe? Uh, some people might not like it. Some people might think that we're using that as a kind of pejorative term that diminishes the, uh, you know, the, the, the people who lived in, in the jungle who were less uh, integrated into these states. And I want to make the point, I'm not diminishing. That's just the term that gets used. Uh, Maybe on purpose. Well, and it may be that from the point of view of the king, they would seem to be less really. Uh, but I, I'm not sure that it carries that connotation. It may just be a word for forest here. Although a different term is, is we do see the word forest in the text, separate and distinct from jungle. So I don't know. I'm not sufficiently yeah. expert in the language to be able to say what carries a negative connotation and what doesn't here. Uh, so I just want to cover my butt. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, and of course, whenever possible, rebels should be prevented from joining forces with each other. You want to turn them against each other when you can. The most dangerous revolts involve cooperation of different parts of the interior of the state. If the king goes on campaign, that's an opportunity for rebellion at home. So when the king goes on campaign, the king should take hostages to dissuade potential rebels from acting against him. Lots and lots of hostages, right? People who are close to specific rebels that the rebel would be very upset if you happen to hurt. Now, there's also specific talk of the secession because the secession can produce instability. Quite detailed discussion, more than you get in Nizam al-Malk. Much more. So there are three kinds of sons on this account. Wise sons understand their duties and practice them. Lazy sons understand their duties but don't practice them. And wicked sons loathe their duties outright, have contempt for them, and are up to no good. All things equal, eldest sons are to be preferred, but wicked sons must never inherit. Never. Never. Doesn't matter if they're eldest. You have to prevent wicked sons from inheriting. And I think this is a, a kind of, to us, it would seem to be a common sense piece of advice for kings that you rarely see discussed in secession uh, discussions in, say, Hobbes or in uh, most Western political theory that discusses the secession mechanics. 
we are all going, well, what if the, the son is really a bad person, though? And that is rarely, really addressed. Well, in this text, in the Arthashastra, it is addressed, right? If you have a wicked son uh, and you can't uh, produce more heirs because you're older, infirm, you can have other people impregnate your wife to avoid the wicked son inheriting. And a son that's bad can be killed, can be disposed of if necessary to get them out of the way, right? There's no rule here against whacking your own sons if they are wicked or they're rebellious, provided you have other sons, and they don't even have to be of your own blood. I mean, people will be upset if it's obvious that they're not of your own blood, so make sure your wife is involved in the conception. If necessary, get a younger wife. If necessary, have other people, uh, provided they're of the same blood, the same varna, the same standing, that they're similar enough to you in terms of their background, have those people impregnate your wife so that you can get another son that isn't a a wicked person, right? If a son is disgruntled, he can be imprisoned or sent to the frontier, right? Uh, If the disgruntled son has really good qualities, you can try giving him more responsibility or make him obviously the heir that will sometimes pacify, right? If a good prince is wronged by his father, so there's discussion here of you're the prince and you've been wronged by your father, your father's mistreated you, It's not such an honor your father kind of thing that that can never occur. The text says, if a good prince is is wronged by his father, then the text gives the prince advice on how to overthrow an unjust king by going into the forest and making alliances with neighboring states. If the king is seriously ill or about to die, it's then on the advisors, the counselors, to make sure the secession comes off. Now, if necessary, the advisor can establish a regency. So say, for instance... You know, you have to get rid of a wicked son, and then you have another son to replace that wicked son, and that son is too young. The advisor can establish a regency, and the regency can make sure that the son is is properly brought up. The regent is not supposed to take the crown for themselves. The regent is supposed to manage the country for the benefit of the heir. And when the heir comes of age, the heir is supposed to assume power. Uh, If the regent is displaced by rivals through some kind of court intrigue, that final piece of advice that is given to a regent in this situation is to disguise yourself as an ascetic, bring the child under your spiritual influence, and then get the uh, the heir to punish the traitors by secret practices. So if you are a regent and you get pushed out, disguise yourself as an ascetic because whenever things really go to seed here, The ultimate solution is to pretend to be a spiritual person. Pretend to be a spiritual person. Use your spiritual charisma to get the the son to listen to you and then eliminate the traitors. They actually thought regents were a bit uh, immoral to have. You'd rather have a pregnant queen or a princess even than a regent. But if so, that's the advice. But it's weird that there's, even though there's so much talk of competence, they respect nobility. They're married together, like you said, with Nizam. They're not separate. Because once you see someone who's a counselor become king, that's a crossing of rank, which could lead other people to try to cross rank. Wherever possible, you avoid crossing rank in this system. It's like one of the ways you try and sow dissension with an enemy is get the lower costs to think that they can marry the higher costs. Yes. The higher costs to not agree. Social mobility is considered a threat. So, uh, yeah, if you're trying to undermine an enemy king, one of the ways you can do that is to try to induce people to 
seek social mobility to try to cross Varna. That's why you've got the stages of life and the ascetic option. It's to avoid this Varna crossing, which is viewed to be a, a fundamental threat to the stability of the state. And then when they punish you for breaking that, either because more, more civil or more criminal reasons doesn't matter. Uh, do you think it's just pure retribution? Because he says that we shouldn't punish thieves, for example, more than what they stole. And then if it's violence, then you can add more and so on. But so it seems kind of like rehabilitating them back into work as well. Yeah, you don't want to waste people if you can avoid it. So, for instance, even the disgruntled son, you can give him more responsibility. You can send him out to a a region and and give him invite him to try to manage a, a regional problem that's far away from home. There are things you can do short of killing someone. Uh, you only kill a rebel if you don't have much choice because they pose a really serious ongoing threat and there's nothing else you can really do with them. Uh, but that said, a lot of the punishments are very severe. A lot of them are very physical and very brutal uh, by contemporary standards. A lot of them are, are really, really nasty. For instance, if you set fire to what's called an elephant forest, a forest with elephants in it, uh, then you are burned to death. So some stuff is taken very, very seriously. Elephant forests in particular are really important. I, I do want to say a little bit about elephant forests because I think they, they're mentioned many, many times in this text. Uh, the king is instructed to economically develop the territory by, building, by, by creating elephant forests, by creating nature preserves in which there are elephants. And elephant forests are considered more valuable than productive forests that produce goods. Why are elephant forests so important? Well, he says, and I'm going to give you a quote here. Some teachers say that land with productive forests is preferable to land with elephant forests because a productive forest is the source of a variety of materials for many undertakings, while the elephant forests supply only elephants. Cotillia disagrees. One can create productive forests on many types of land, but not elephant forests. For one depends on elephants for the destruction of an enemy's forces. There's a chief commander of the elephant corps with very specific duties. There are elephant forest rangers. There are elephant forest guards. Elephants are taken very, very seriously as a core part of an ancient Indian military infrastructure. Right? So, Part of the reason that an ancient Indian state is going to be very concerned with the protection of nature is that elephants live in nature, and elephants have military and strategic value. And teaching everybody to protect life protects the environments where you have elephants, and you need those elephants. At one point, he, he says even that it's better to have many dumb elephants than a few brave or courageous elephants. Because many elephants is intimidating, and you can train elephants over time. You can fix the fact that they're poorly trained. But if you only have a small handful of elephants, you're badly disadvantaged, right? Huge emphasis on elephants. And, and this, you, you got to think about this, because in a lot of Western stuff, elephants are talked about a little bit derisively as a kind of fringe military thing that you might have, but unreliable, undependable, difficult to train. Here, elephants are taken completely seriously as a core part of the military, as a core part of the society, as something that you, you, you mark out substantial chunks of territory for elephants. 
And you want large numbers of elephants, which means you need big elephant forests to sustain all those elephants. More valuable than, than having a forest you can log is a forest with elephants in it. That's considered fortified territory. You can fight an army in an elephant forest, and you'll have the advantage because you'll have elephants that live there that are native to that forest. It must be why it's kind of an honor to get yourself gored to death by an elephant in this book. Yeah, it's a relatively soft way to go. <laughs> Jesus. I guess so. Yeah. You- uh, yeah. Considering how many very grisly punishments are in this book, it's full of really... I, it's hard to understate the level of nasty punishments. Do you think that that's like the main thing that's guaranteeing order? He said he says that uh, the Arthur Shastra is equivalent to Dandaniti, so the science of wealth is equal to the science of punishment. But then he says, obviously, it's not just about the punishments, and it's also about you know getting people to have good habits and stuff. But yeah, the, it the seems punishments like are considered the absolutely motive. essential to to maintain order because this is a weak, you know, relatively weak state. That's why you have so many spies, and it's why you have all these grisly punishments. The weaker the state is, the bigger the demonstration needs to be when somebody breaks the law, because the state isn't going to catch you every time. It's not going to catch everybody who breaks every rule, but when it does catch somebody, it really, really has to go after it. Now, this is not framed as making an example, but of course it is making an example because most of the time you won't catch somebody, but you can never admit that. That can never be said. Yeah, yeah. You're going to catch as many people as you can. That's why you've got all the spies. And when you do catch somebody, everybody's going to see what happens because it's going to be a physical punishment. Hmm. Ideally, you should catch them for something not important, they said, so that you can parade them and show that the king's got eyes everywhere. So... Yeah, if you catch somebody for something minor, then you, you don't have to kill them. And, and they can say, oh, the king caught me. Wow. You know, it's, it's like if the IRS catches up with you, you know, and makes you pay a little bit of tax that you didn't pay. Uh, you know, it doesn't ruin your life, but it makes you go, ooh, I better follow the rules. Otherwise, the IRS might get me. But if there aren't very many people around who have been got by the IRS lately, then you start to wonder, well, will they catch me if I just don't report this or that? Right? There's a lot. There, there seems to be a lot of that just... Well, no, maybe not. Going after small element, small crimes. I don't know. But. Yeah, because then the punishments don't have to be as severe, and you can achieve law and order without having to be so dramatic. Uh, once somebody gets to the point where they're committing a big crime, uh, they've probably been committing small crimes for a while, and they've been getting away with it, and that's why they went so far. And now you have to make a big demonstration. It wastes that person mm-hmm. and what they might otherwise be able to do for you. So there is a significant focus on that. Uh, I do want to talk about the seven constitutive elements of the state. We're getting a little bit, we don't have a lot of time because I usually do an hour. So I want to kind of get through a little bit of the IR and the constitutive elements. Uh, So the seven elements of the state, the king, the advisors, the territory together with its inhabitants, the fortified towns and cities, the treasury, the armed forces, and the allies right? These are the seven things. So when you're talking about whether a state is more powerful or less powerful than another state, it's who is stronger in those seven areas. A bad king will eventually ruin the other things. Uh, A good king can over time strengthen the other things. A king is ready to conquer if he's good and the other things are in good condition too, right? A king is meant to have a variety of qualities, leadership qualities, intellectual qualities, energetic qualities, and personal qualities, in addition to all of that prince training that we talked about before. Uh, 
the king in, in foreign policy can be active or passive and can enjoy progress, decline, or no change. These are relative concepts concerned with comparing the king to neighboring kings. So how strong are the constitutive elements of one kingdom versus another? If they're getting stronger, you're making progress. If they're declining, you're declining or no change. A king who has excellent personal qualities, presides over strong constitutive elements, can undertake the active policy of conquest. And this king is the conqueror. Kings that share borders with the conqueror are antagonists. Any king with a border is an antagonist. Powerful antagonists who are competitive, who have a similar set of constitutive elements, they're the enemy. Antagonists that are weak in one or two of the constitutive elements are vulnerable adversaries that you can take advantage of. Antagonists who are weak across the board in all seven areas are destroyable antagonists. And antagonists who have the support of other further states can be weakened or harassed. Natural enemies are, uh, have kings that come from the same family as the conqueror and are of equally high birth. An antagonist by intent is opposed to the conqueror or induced to be opposed. A king who shares a border with an antagonist but not with the conqueror is a potential ally of the conqueror. Right? So if you think about India, you know, say India is, is the state and Pakistan is the enemy state. Well, Iran has a border with Pakistan, but not India. So Iran is on this theory, a potential ally of India in a war with Pakistan. Now, that means, of course, that Bangladesh, which borders India, but not Pakistan, would be a potential ally of Pakistan in a conflict with India. Now, the theory suggests that you can just keep doing this. You can just keep moving this further and further out and that states on opposite sides will alternate in this ally-enemy sequence. Now, this is easier to imagine in a situation where you have a lot of very small Indian states, Indian kingdoms that are really tiny. It's harder to try to scale this up, although you will have some Indians from time to time who are big fans of this work and will try to say that you can use it to do contemporary foreign policy. It's very implausible because th the states are of such a size and such a scale uh, and you're not having states anymore that just conquer states in a line like is suggested by this book. So I, I don't think you should try to use this, but I do want to give it to you because it is interesting, right? Uh, now, this is not meant to apply merely to large states. So if the conqueror's holdings are small, the conqueror can try to destroy enemies of comparable size, but there might be a larger king called a middle king that has a border with both the conqueror and the conqueror's enemies. The middle king can destroy either state alone, but not both at the same time, right? So if you were to apply this to today, you might say that China is a middle king, right? China has a border with both India and Pakistan and is more powerful than either of those states individually. Although because of nuclear weapons, obviously China can't destroy either India or Pakistan now. But if everybody had, ancient, had an ancient military, it might be the case that head to head, China could defeat one or the other. Although, really, because of the size and scale, it just wouldn't work. China could not invade India and never did invade India and, and conquer it uh, in antiquity. But if you were dealing with smaller states, small Indian principalities, you could imagine how it might be said to work. An even larger state, led by a neutral king, does not share a border with the conqueror or the conqueror's enemy or the middle king, 
but is stronger than all three and capable of destroying any one of the three in isolation, in any case able to influence events among the three. So again, if you were to try to apply this now, which you shouldn't do, the United States would be the neutral king, right? It is more powerful than all of those states, but is located far away. There is either an effort made to draw this up schematically. So you, you can find, and if you type this in on the internet, if you go and Google it, what you'll find is a little checkerboard pattern. It looks a little bit like a, like a, a, a board game where you have a series of hexagons and you've got you know, the enemy, an ally, the enemy's ally, the ally's ally, the enemy's ally's ally, and all in a row, as if this is really how it goes, right? So you're not going to be able to actually apply this to foreign policy today, but you could imagine an environment where you really have a bunch of ancient states that are largely concerned with expanding their uh, arable land by conquest, where maybe it might be plausible to think in this way in antiquity. And it shows how fundamentally different this period is, that this is a theory that was not just considered plausible, but this is an exalted book that is taken extremely seriously by ancient sources, right? Now, the conqueror prevails when the conqueror's kingdom is more powerful than the enemy. But since power is a means to happiness, that means that the conqueror will be the one with the happier subjects. Because if you've got power and you're using it effectively, you will have a lot of very content subjects. Three kinds of power, intellectual, which is about having good advisors, physical, which is about having a strong treasury and a strong army, and psychological, which is connected to morale and energetic action. Since the most powerful kingdom is the one that conquers, the most powerful kingdom is the happiest. The happiest kingdom prevails. And therefore, the conqueror is the happiness spreader on this theory. The conqueror is getting rid of a king who has made their subjects not as happy and is replacing that king with themselves, a, a king who is, has very happy subjects, as evidenced by the fact that he's won. So the implication here is the winning king has happier subjects, and therefore, when you get conquered, you have a better king now. So you should be perfectly happy with this. But it is qualified, I just have to say. Because you've got three types of conquerors. You've got the righteous who just wants you to submit. You've got the greedy that wants the possessions. And then you've got the, what is it, horrific or something. And they want yeah, some, the greedy and the atrocities. Yeah, some conquerors won't treat you like just an extension of the kingdom. The way that the conqueror is supposed to behave, if the conqueror knows what they're doing, the conqueror is supposed to treat the conquered subjects just the same way. They're supposed to be integrated, brought in, and treated just like any other part of the territory. But if instead the conqueror treats them as second class, then they're not going to be as happy as the subjects in the core. And if you do that, then you're going to get rebellions and problems, and that's going to prevent you from continuing to conquer. And ultimately, if you want to be really, really strong, you want to keep conquering. And to do that, you have to consolidate, and that means making the subjects in the territory that you've annexed happy. So people who defend this work will say... This is not at all Machiavellian because it's all focused on spreading happiness and joy, which it is. So sarcastic. <laughs> it is focused on spreading happiness and joy by its own terms within its own framework. But I think it's a really interesting text to do because it uh, frames conquest in a way that is totally alien to a modern audience and really makes you uh, have to think about some of our presumptions about how things work. 
it can throw you for a bit of a loop because it's such a different framing altogether from the framing of conquest that we get uh, in even you know, medieval Western sources don't frame conquest like this. Uh, they don't frame conquest as a way of spreading happiness. Uh, no, it's framed more about dealing with, say, uh, infidels or with uh, you know, helping people on spiritual journeys or something, maybe. Uh, or in antiquity, you sometimes talk about you know, the need to expand to acquire slaves. But that's not how this is pitched. The larger the kingdom becomes, it just gets larger. You don't treat the conquered people badly. If you do, it's a mistake. Maybe it's implicit, though, in all the Western ones, because king's wealth equals people's wealth. So therefore, a king, and they say that the king can expand to increase his wealth. Therefore, it's implied that people are going to benefit, but just maybe not said as, you know, explicitly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very interesting text because it is very direct about why ancient states in India might do many of the things that they would do. It gives rationales for a lot of behavior that might otherwise seem to us to be backward or, or uh, to not make sense. Uh, I, uh, one of the things that's really interesting about reading a lot of ancient stuff that comes from contexts that we don't normally look at in the Western tradition is that you often get very direct explanations of, of uh, behavior that Oftentimes, I think people who fetishize or orientalize about other cultures uh, don't necessarily want to acknowledge uh, that, you know, conquest is not a specifically Western or specifically white or European thing. It is something that you see throughout antiquity because there are specific reasons that ancient states have for engaging in that kind of behavior. Uh, and that's why, say, uh, you know, Benjamin Constant makes that argument that ancient states are prone to war fighting as a way of trying to get richer, that that is, is the logic of having this largely agrarian kind of society where your wealth depends on land. Uh, so we see a certain commonality there. There is a, a bluntness to this text that is rather refreshing. It's very detailed. I think it, it balances the uh, spiritual specificity with economic and military specificity quite well. It's It's got a lot going on in it. Uh, more, I think, than Nizam al-Malk, because Nizam al-Malk tends to not pay so much attention to, say, developing the, the traits of the king or to uh, the secession issue. Uh, so uh, Nizam al-Malk's book is quite detailed, but this is even more detailed than that. Uh, and it really gives you a sense of, you know, why, why do you have the Varnas and the stages of life and how do they fit together? And what is the real political attitude about the ascetics? Because I think a lot of the time from the Western perspective, uh, the, the ascetic is just kind of treated as, as a kind of romantic figure. And there isn't as much thought that goes into how does that really work socially? What is the, the function of that politically and sociologically? And it has a function. It is not just, uh, uh, an attempt to pursue value for value's sake. It's not that Eastern states have some kind of special connect connection to, to, to substantive value that Western states have lost. It's that there were instrumental reasons to pursue policies which allowed people to pursue substantive value. And instrumentality and substantive value went together and reinforced each other. 
in a way that doesn't always work in capitalist states, regardless of where they're located, whether they're in the West, they're in the East, whatever part of the world you might find them in. Capitalist states don't necessarily have a logic which promotes some of the behaviors that these kinds of states promoted. Uh, and so there are certain advantages and certain disadvantages to this approach. Uh, asceticism is is encouraged and built into it, and it, there's an option, there's a path. But of course, it's a way of letting off steam. It prevents the caste system from being revised, right? So when these kinds of kingdoms come into contact with capitalist states, the caste system becomes a liability because it becomes less economically productive than the capitalist system. And then the asceticism insofar as it allows the varnas to continue becomes an impediment to reform and so disrupting the system of asceticism becomes part of how you disrupt the varnas and encourage people to adopt uh, more liberal individualist or capitalist approaches but asceticism doesn't have to support the varnas it's not just there to do that or is that what you're kind of Pointing to well, it's, it's there to do that, and then it's also valued for its own sake because it's part of the spiritual journey. So it's both. It has both an instrumental and a substantive dimension. And people who romanticize asceticism forget its instrumental dimension. The reason that asceticism worked and was there at some scale is that it fit in instrumentally to the maintenance of the state. So it goes both directions. To have these spiritual paths, they have to fit into some kind of social order. And to have a social order that feels valuable to people, it must make space for spiritual paths. And if you have a social order like the capitalist order that doesn't really make space for spiritual paths, then it feels empty. It feels like it lacks substantive value. At the same time, if you have a set of ascetics who don't really recognize or have the maturity to recognize that they have to be embedded in some kind of social order, then that creates problems from a different direction. Hence the suspicion about some of these Brahmins and ascetics in this book who are, you, you, there's this worry constantly that they don't get it, that they're just kind of out for themselves, that they don't really understand how they fit in because they do fit in. They think they're fitting out, but they're still fitting in. And, and we should wrap this up, but the foreign policy, when they're talking about you need at least three other states, you, you know, your ally, their ally, similarly, the enemy, the enemy's ally, um, that sounds a lot like today. And then at the scale larger than that, you talk about the middle and the neutral kings. That sounds like the regional hegemon or the block, you know. So it- a lot of realist thinkers think that a lot of this still applies. Henry Kissinger loves it because he thinks a lot of it still applies reasonably well. Because the scale. The thing, the thing is, the scale makes it difficult because it's much harder to conquer states of the kind of size that generally prevail today than states uh, and small Indian principalities. Uh, and then also, there is a different cost-benefit analysis to conquest these days because most of the wealth of states is not coming from farmland anymore. Okay, but you're conquering them economically then, whatever that means. Well, and, and, and oftentimes the amount of trade disruption involved in a war now is so great that it overwhelms any benefit that you might get to holding territory. And then we have a lot of narratives about nationalism that make it very difficult to integrate populations that you conquer. In this period, if you treat the people that you conquer like your own subjects in your own core territory, you can consolidate them and they will accept you because you're a king who's following basically the same rules. Every Indian prince has got some version of the Arthashastra. Everyone's heard of it. 
right? So everybody can follow it and you're not doing, you're not departing from the Vedas. Everybody's got the Vedas in here. So there isn't a whole lot of, of intense value diversity. There isn't a sense of, oh, these are different nations or these are different spiritual. Uh, I mean, there is a, some discussion of heretics, of dangerous mystics who will propagate ideas that will cause trouble, that will disrupt the social order. But for the most part, the same broad uh, scheme can apply to a diverse array of Indian states. So when you conquer people on this view, you don't have to force them to adopt a fundamentally different way of life. You just come in and you do kingship better than the king they previously had. You impose the, the laws that are broadly the same laws, but you do it better and more fairly, and people will respond to that. And that's why conquest is said to work here. If you try to do that today, there are so many, because the nation state has appendaged itself to a very fixed and specific culture, it becomes very difficult to get subjects that are conquered to go along, even in states that are relatively similar in a lot of respects. I mean, look at the, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. It's very difficult for the Russians to add territory that doesn't have a large number of people who are already sympathetic to Russia to begin with, are already Russian language speakers. It's difficult because there's this ex expectation that the nation state is going to give you this very cathartic, tight cultural relationship. Here, the king is, is just imposing a set of rules, making a set of economic investments, and doing it all in accordance with the Vedas, which everybody is, is doing here, ostensibly. So there isn't that level of, of trouble when you try to conquer or you try to add territory. If you try to apply it now, the fact that conquest is more heavily disincentivized makes it work less well. Now, that's not to say that realism is irrelevant. I think that there's still a lot of, of security concern that states have. And there are situations where states will fight wars that make them poorer. States do do that sometimes. Uh, but the straightforward logic of fighting wars continuously all the time to try to expand, where you get, you know, there are six foreign policies given, uh, six different things that you can try to do, right? Only six methods of foreign policy, making peace, waging war, staying quiet, preparing for war, seeking support, and a dual policy in which you make peace with one state and war with another concurrently, right? All of this is focused around war. And it's all focused around war because outside of making investments and improving the infrastructure, once you've improved the infrastructure as much as you can improve it, the only way to increase the wealth of the state and its power is to fight wars. And if you're weaker, if you have less power than another state, then you can potentially be invaded. And it's very straightforward and, and, and axiomatic. But in the contemporary context... It, it makes a lot less sense. So you see this much less often. You don't see a lot of states just invading other states to take territory. The places where it still is, is most likely to happen are places where the wealth of the country is still very geographically oriented. So if you're dealing with petrol states, like, for instance, the Iran-Iraq War, that conflict over territory is about oil wells and acquiring them to a substantial degree, gaining control over the Gulf. That's because for those states, an enormous percentage of their output depends on oil, which is geographically fixed. You either control oil wells, you don't control them. But in these service economies, these financialized, heavily trade-based economies that we have, it, it is much less often the case that you ought to invade a state just because they're weaker than you and you can add their territory. You know, for instance, the United States is much more powerful than Mexico. 
and has invaded it before and, you know, occupied Mexico City. But it doesn't make a lot of sense at this point for the United States to annex the territory of Mexico. That would involve having to assimilate a fairly large population that would not immediately feel like it was part of the United States, not immediately feel like it was uh, of the same nation or of the same people. And it would take a lot of work to create that feeling. It doesn't take as much work here. As long as the king you're invading is a king who nominally is committed to following the Vedas, and you're a king who's nominally committed to following the Vedas, you can just do it better than that king, and uh, people will accept that. Not the economic warfare of today, if you can call it that, and be edgy and say, you know, whatever city you go in, it's basically the same world consumer civilization. So, well, uh, here we do have a lot of economic competition, and sometimes people make arguments for you know, protectionism and tariffs and so on. But even then, you can't do it in this kind of checkerboard pattern because stuff moves around the world in ways which have very little to do with you know, which states are physically in what order. Yeah, the checkerboard thing. So there is an economic warfare maybe, but not like the yeah where your yeah. neighbor is your enemy, then the one after that is your ally and... Yeah, yeah. Checkable. the competition has a very different look and feel now. At this point, usually states that have a border with each other are part of you know, economic cooperative blocks. It's much less likely that those are the states that will be fiercely competing. Instead, we have whole regional blocks that are competing, say, you know, North America with East Asia or, or Europe with, uh, with uh, East Asia or with uh, Western Europe with Eastern Europe. It's, it's more blocky and regional. And the states are not fighting you know, France versus Italy. You know, it's not as if Italy is France's enemy and then Slovenia is France's friend. It, it doesn't work like that now. But there is maybe a checkerboard in the regional blocks? Or not? I, I, don't th I don't think so. I don't think it works that way at this stage. But it's interesting to imagine a, a situation in which this does sound like a plausible description. And it did. And it was, to a large degree, a plausible description of the time that it's describing. But it wouldn't work as a plausible description of now. Yet you can still see some of the advice that is given in this text does seem relevant. Things like, you know, the state needs to invest and build stuff that the private sector will not otherwise build. Uh, the state needs to have a substantial economic power base so that it can check the power of rising uh, private oligarchs so that those oligarchs don't get too powerful and override the state and start to dictate its policy and make the state cater too much to those private interests. Some of that stuff is perfectly relevant. The idea that they, you know, the power of the state ought to be used to further the happiness of the subjects, you know, uh, some of that stuff is, is reasonably relevant stuff. But in seeing the things that don't quite fit or are different, we can see a little bit what is distinctive about how we have things organized in our kinds of societies. It's really very different. And there's nothing natural or inevitable about the way we organize our societies. Other societies have existed that are radically different, in which something like this theory could seem to straightforwardly apply. So the equality of all beings, those kinds of premises. Yeah, the equality of all beings, but you know, this possibility of continuing to fight wars of conquest, because while all of these beings are equal, they're all equally subject to the Vedas. And that means that when you come into a new state, uh, if you follow the Vedas, you can potentially conquer it. It's not an equality which is fused with uh, li liberty and, and representation and concepts of the nation state, where each of the different peoples has to be accorded sovereignty and treated as separate and equal to all the other people. It's not a, na a nation statey story. It's not a nationalist story. It's a whole different vision for politics that comes out of a totally different time, a time when it made sense to have elephant forests and to value them higher than productive forests. 
I think we'll wrap up there. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Goodbye.